So now it's my pleasure to introduce our author and our colleague, K.L. Pereira. She will also be in conversation with Dawn Wallace to discuss her debut story collection, which is for sale outside, A Dream Between Two Rivers, Stories of Liminality. Like many of us here at the Athenaeum, KL loves ghost stories and, and old libraries. She holds a BA from Bard College, an MFA from Goddard College, and is a degree candidate in the Masters of Library and Information Science at Simmons College. She has taught creative writing at Grub Street since 2006. Steeped in dark fantasy and magical realism, her fiction, poetry, and nonfiction have appeared in a variety of anthologies and other publications. She may be familiar to many of you because she's part of our technical services as an intern and catalogs away in the evening. Dawn, our chief conservator, has worked at libraries and museums from Harvard to the Huntington in Southern California with many stops in between. She received her professional degree from Buffalo State College Art Conservation and Graduate Program in 2009. Her Bachelor of Arts in Studio Arts from Rutgers University in 1995. She serves on the board of New England Conserv Conservation Association. Excuse me. Please join me in welcoming K.L. and Dawn. Hello. Can everybody hear me okay? <laughs> Welcome. <Hey. laughs> and thank you, KL, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. <laughs> also, um, I wanted to start by thanking everybody for being here today. Um, a really big thanks to the event team for putting everything together, and Carol for the wonderful intro, and just everybody at the Athenaeum who's awesome and amazing to work with every day. So shall we get started? Yeah, let's just dig right in. All right. So um, the subtitle of your book is Stories in Liminality. How do your stories speak to that experience? So liminality is, um, this is a question that I get asked a lot. Um, this is sort of my SAT question, um, vocabulary question, answer. Um, liminality is the state of being in between. And my stories are all centered around um, those in-between spaces, between life and death, um, youth and adulthood, being between races, classes, um, being queer. And um, I think these, for me, are experiences that aren't seen or explored as much, especially in um, literature, and also aren't as acknowledged. Um, so they were a really fruitful place for me to center my narratives and my characters. Um, and I can give you kind of a little taste of what I mean by that. I'll read an excerpt of my story, Not Quite Taken. And, um, Which is my favorite. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, um, thanks to, for humoring me. <laughs> just to kind of get us started off and to give you a sense of what I mean by liminality. So this is Not Quite Taken. One. It starts with your fingers. Even in the cool air, you feel the bite of the decay chewing your skin. And you take up smoking again so that anyone who cares to notice 
no one ever cares to notice. We'll see clouds of gray streaming from your lips and assume at least some of it was the heat of your breath meeting winter air. Spare a cigarette, love. The woman is so time-worn that you want to ask her if maybe she hasn't just misplaced her pack somewhere in the folds of her skin. You get meaner when you start dying. You've noticed that. Her, eye, her gray eyes are so pale they are almost white, a heathery northern sky, and you slip her too like a silent apology. Ta, love. She lights both with a sure hand and begins to hum something that feels so familiar you're sure you've heard it before, right here on this spot. But that's not possible, is it? You've taken all the precautions. Nevertheless, you move away, decide to walk to the next railway stop from here on out. The tune continues to drive into your brain, lightning rods stabbing behind your eyes through your commute and even into the night when you're back in the safe dark of your house. Two, your skin gets dry. Dry is perhaps a ridiculous word for it. It feels like someone, some unseen Egyptian undertaker is continually rubbing salt into your flesh. Once you slathered yourself with lotion, wrapped yourself in gauze, chanting, mummy, mummy, perhaps I will wake up as Boris Karloff, yes? Toward the cat, who barely acknowledges you when you're in this state. Mostly, she narrows her yellow eyes and turns her gray nose down before returning to sleep. That time, she cocked her head as if to say, stupid human, and hid in the closet from the smell. It came off you in waves, like your skin did soon after. You don't want to think about how you looked without your skin, kidney brown and red and moist. You can almost feel the pain now, just thinking about it. You wear loose linen and sandals while you molt. You let yourself itch, knowing that eventually other parts of you must go. Of course, the skin always takes the longest. Three, you start to feel sluggish in the mornings, walking to the railway, railway station that is farthest from your house, but close enough for you to get to unaided. You hate depending on others, and as your muscles begin to stiffen, you tell yourself that this time you'll push yourself a little bit each day. Keep yourself limber, well-oiled like the Tin Man, dancing in a technicolor forest of poison apple trees and dogs and witches. Your joints protest as you sit down, and one morning, as you sit across from a small child on the train, you feel and hear your knees pop like gunshots. Mum, the child doesn't bother to speak softly or not to stare. That lady's broke herself, I heard it. That's nice, darling, the mother returns, frowning at the metro. It's nearly a relief to know that those who can see you for what you are are mostly ignored by the rest of the world. That's great. Thank you. I just love that opening paragraph. It just starts with your fingers, and then it kind of reminds me of just how the story kind of moves along 
you know, following these these fingers and things like that. <laughs> well, it's and it's, it's interesting for me that that story um, was an idea that I had about what would it be like um, if there was a character that died over and over and experienced the process of death over and over. You know, I often think of. Mm. Um, I go to the fantastical and the dark and the, these different places, and that was just an idea that really um, stuck with me. Mm. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. So are there any specific inspirations for your stories that might surprise us? Um, I do have this flash piece that I um, will read um, in a moment called Pompeii, and it was actually inspired both by a visit to actual Pompeii where I got lost and thought maybe I was going to join, join the people there forever. Um, but also, um, I get a lot of inspiration um, from museums and different sort of exhibits and um, places like the Athenaeum, where there are a lot of interesting um, pieces that have interesting histories. Um, for this piece, Pompeii, I was particularly struck um, by this piece that had been excavated and it was maybe a hundred skeletons that had been fused together. And normally when we see um, Pompeii, we see the featureless casts of where, you know, people were, um, people were when they, when they died um, from the, from the ash. Um, but this was actual skeletons and it puzzled me. Um, and so it really made me think of the way in which that often we're um, tourists to destruction, um, a lot of the destruction that happens in the world. And it made me think of how we're also, in some ways, um, tourists to our own destruction and trauma and how those two ideas connect. Um, so that idea of making sense of tragedy was really what um, kind of inspired this particular story, which I'll read. Pompeii. The day we moved, ash fell like snow on a February day, blanketing old stairs that burned under our feet, our tongue, tongues darting out, not yet knowing these white gray crystals as toxic. It was a neat asphyxiation, sitting behind the drawn blinds, limbed with the last of the sun, waiting for a slow death to find me watching my mother scald her moist hands dry under the tap, washing the dishes until they disintegrated into hot ash. She told me to watch, listen for eruptions that could spew us all into the sky, this and other empty warnings before she left for work. Remember, she'd say, haloed by the musty light of the open door, lava pooling around her sensible shoes, no boys. And if you see the ash cloud coming toward you, run. She wiped her hands on my cheeks, traces of our melted dishes smudging my coal-painted face. Our Pompeii was clatter terracotta and pyroclastic urges that led to untimely demise. Years later, revisiting my childhood city, I stood with tourists, a brochure in hand that said, experience the destruction saw 32 skeletons fused together in an Escher-like maze of bones in positions that seemed impossible, even in agony. 
I tried but couldn't recognize their faces. Did their screams live somewhere in my memory? Did I intentionally forget them? It was only when I saw the melted stoop, the glass blasted back to sand, that I remembered the day we moved there, why we stayed, how in the other house, with the other man. My mother had held her hand over her mouth to avoid suffocation. How at this beginning, at that end, we shared a twin bed, two girls, my head buried in her chest, her hollow birth canal and accordion ribs enclosing me, our mouths opening and closing, trying to breathe. Well, I do have a question about that, but I'm going to save it for um, your last reading because it kind of ties in with that. <laughs> so. And I think uh, one of the reasons why we are sitting here having this conversation is because uh, the things that KL writes about are things that I want to read. <laughs> so we've had many conversations on that. Um, like spooky, spooky Friends Club. Yeah, of Spooky Athena. Friends Club. <laughs> so, uh, so what attracts you to this subject matter? I mean, why do you write this dark fiction or this horror? Um, I think one of the things that um, I was very lucky to have um, in in this sort of interest were uh, a father and a grandmother who were both really obsessed with horror. And from a very young age, I watched any everything you probably shouldn't show your children. <laughs> um, I watched, you know, all of the Hammer horror, um, all the classic sort of Universal monsters. I think my favorite books were always like creepy, like R.L. Stein back in the day, sort of Christopher Pike things. Um, and I think one of the things that has, that has always attracted me to monsters um, is that they're sort of the weirdos and the oddballs and the people who, um, or the beings who kind of stick out and that don't really fit in. Um, and as a child and, and as like a teenager, you know, like many folks, I felt that way. Um, and I think that fear and dealing with fear and dealing with monsters is actually very important, especially for children, because it sort of gives you a roadmap of how to sort of face your fears and face the difficult things that come up in life. Um, it kind of gives you a map out of the forest of whatever you're inside. Um, and I wrote sort of, I wrote a short piece that was, is similarly kind of a map of how to get out of a bad situation that I'll, I'll share with you now. This is called How to Bring Your Dead Lover Back. Ask the man in the dark blue Chevy Impala to leave you at the second left after the crossroads. Crossroads are for devil deals and demons, and it's too late for that. Take your backpack with you, but leave your shoes in the car. You'll have to suffer at least a little to get where you need to go. Walk along the desert skirting road. Don't get hypnotized by the cactuses in bloom, their flaming headdresses swaying in the hazy air. Stay away from coyote tricksters. They'll smell the blood on your feet, gobble you up, 
Leave Your Bones to Bleach by Moonlight. In an hour, or maybe 10 hours, a figure will approach. She'll look like a woman in her 40s with dirty blonde hair and shimmering tattoos. Don't look at the tattoos, no matter how seductively they dance. Talk to the woman, but don't tell her you've been looking for her. Death likes to think she's the only one who ever knows where she is. There it goes. <laughs> when death asks you back to her place, tell her you know a honky-tonk she'd like. Lead her down the road, but always walk in front of her. Never let death walk next to you, especially in the desert. Buy death a bottle of tequila when you get to the honky-tonk. Don't drink a drop, no matter how nicely she offers. She'll try to cheat you by passing out, saying she's too drunk, but no one should ever believe death. Make sure she drinks the entire bottle before the moon rises. After the last drop leaves the bottle, tell death that you found her, led her to drink and comfort and now she owes you a favor. Don't flinch while you say this, or it won't work. Make death promise to let me go. Promise anything. When death agrees, I will appear behind you. Don't turn around. Everything will go to hell if you turn around. Once outside, open your bag and drop stale pat packs of camels behind you like breadcrumbs so death can't follow us. Walk back toward the crossroads, make a deal with no one, but get in the first car that comes by. Be patient, don't look behind you. Offer the driver whatever you have left of the stale cigarettes. When you find a diner at least 61 miles away, Ask the driver to stop. Look in the rearview mirror. I'll be there. Eat as much as you can at the diner. We have a long journey ahead. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Great. So, as a uh, writer, a teacher, and a or studying to be librarian, how do these paths come together for you? that all of these paths really are about, um, for me, about stories, about telling stories and finding stories and um, underscoring the narratives that maybe aren't told or aren't as visible um, and connecting the right st stories with the right people. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, for me, it is kind of all about looking at, you know, I've always loved fairy tales. And I think one of the reason that I love fairy tales is because um, it's sort of, we're telling the same stories over and over, but we're starting to, when we retell them, we're suiting them to, to our needs. What we right. need from a narrative, what we need to see, um, what kind of experiences that we're yearning for. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, we all, need to do. I think Toni Morrison famously said, if you 
um, see, if you don't see yourself in a book or you don't see the story you want to read, you need to write it. And I think for me, um, I come from a family of storytellers. I don't come from, from a family of writers, but writing has always been my way of um, telling the stories that I needed to tell or that I needed to read to myself. And I think that, you know, in teaching that it's the same sort of um, presenting that possibility to, um, you know, especially young people. I love working with teens and I still teach teens at, at Grub Street. Um, and it's, you know, one of my favorite things to do because I think that we're really underscoring the importance of creating narrative um, and why creating narrative is um, important for creating empathy um, and um, for creating a space for yourself in the world, really. Um, I think one of the things, so for me, I've always been really obsessed with two Greek myths. And speaking of myths. Speaking of myths. <laughs> um, and as a child in the second grade, my, my teacher, if we were good, if we were good all week on Fridays, she would let us sit on the carpet and would read us Greek myths. <laughs> and um, my two favorites were Demeter and Persephone, which I think are many people's favorites. People love the Persephone story. Um, and uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, and I always sort of wondered what it would be like um, if we put, if the stories were told maybe from the perspectives of Persephone, of Eurydice, and why, you know, why they function the way that they do um, in the story. They really seem to be objects for the other characters to move around. So um, this is kind of my uh, Persephone and Eurydice meet up and, you know, go wild, basically. It's sort of a new, a new interpretation um, of those myths. So this is called Postcards from the Underworld, and it's told in a, a few different parts. So number one is called Mother Love. It's a series of postcards. To Persephone, the world, general delivery. Love your mother. Where are you? Can't you tell me, even me? Zeus keeps bringing me roses. He says he can't make you come back, that Eurydice is a loose cannon that he should have dealt with long ago. He doesn't say he's sorry. I let him drip rain on the front porch and let the roses die. The cat keeps pining for you. I forget to feed her sometimes, and then she reminds me with a sharp bite. When did I get so forgetful? I miss your long hair. There's snarls I brushed out when your arms were too tired. If you come home, I won't forget you. Love, Mom. To Demeter from Persephone. Mom, just stop it. That cat is old and deaf and can barely tell you're there. She never cared for anyone but Zeus. And you know what? He liked her more than us. He never wanted a family, just a pet. P.S. I haven't had long hair since I was seven. Remember? I fell asleep chewing that minty gum one of your nymph friends left behind, and it got stuck in my hair like a sticky green web. We had to get that old lady next door, the one who had sharp scissors from the weaving factory, to cut it out. I cried. You said that's what I get for being careless. Carelessness loses, loses love, you said. 
Then a few nights later, Zeus split, leaving his old cat in his record collection. He said, I wasn't beautiful anymore, that I no longer made myself beautiful just for him, he said. When I reminded you about carelessness making losing what you love your own fault, you slapped me. I don't, didn't miss Zeus. I still don't. Two, the lovers, or Eurydice and Persephone in Tornado Alley. We sit under the dark bruise of Oklahoma sky, her hands in my lap. It didn't start like this, braiding hair and coy mouths peeking from behind clammy palms. It was all hot mouth on my neck, thumbs pressing elbows. Tumbleweeds crowd the car and dust swirls the heavens green. And it's, instead of being soft, our bodies are hard, too hard to be torn away from the earth. Neither of us thought anything of going to hell, of becoming concubine or shade. Three, breaking out. She leaned in close, blood from her lips staining the skin just below Persephone's ear and whispered, this is how you kill a god. The shades taught her how to take it all away with just one kiss. Eurydice's black hair tangles in his hands as she pushes him against the alley wall. His bare arms are bar floor sticky, slick with sweat, and he sighs into her open mouth. He tastes eager and young, mouthwash over cheap beer. She sucks his breath, his memory away. As he loses himself to her, she slides her hand around his sweaty back, unhooks the keys on his belt. She wants to keep going, wants to make it all the way out of here, snuff him out like a candle for being so stupid as to fall for a mysterious woman in a grungy bar. He gasps for air, his gasps for air make it difficult to stop, but this is more than a tryst. It's her gout-out-of-jail-free card. So she squeezes his shoulder and steps back as he drips to the ground like dirty rainwater. In a few moments, he'll blink bleary eyes at the sky, know the names and locations of all the stars and the great constellations, but not who he is. Cassiopeia, he calls after her. But she's already backing out of the alley. Toward the dark blue Chevy Impala she spied him driving earlier tonight. She wants to be well away from the underworld when the queen kills her king. Eurydice hasn't been, hadn't been sure that Persephone would help her, but the queen's memory was long, a gray snake that squeezed her heart until it was ash. She was only half god, a trophy still that Hades displayed for the denizens of the underworld, has proof of his power over the living and the dead. The shades and the harpy ghosts would riot, of course, would kill the queen, surely, or at least try. Eurydice pushes the impala into last gear, feels the hooves of a thousand horses beneath her, and hopes it's enough. She's got a long way to go before the sun rises. Okay, now, uh, last question. <laughs> do I even need to ask this one? But, uh, so, do you believe in ghosts? Uh, have you seen one? Do you think the Athenaeum is haunted? So the Athenaeum is definitely <laughs> haunted. 
Um, I, I do believe in ghosts. Um, I think that um, one of the most interesting things about ghosts to me is that whether you believe that if whether you believe that they're here physically or in your mind, you are. I think that we manifest what we miss, and we, um, you know, growing up, I did live in a house that I, I truly believe my uh, great grandmother just kind of hung out in, um, and my bedroom was actually the room that she died in. But you know, no one told me. They were just like, "Oh, here, bedroom." girl, fine, whatever. Um, and then, you know, later when my grandmother was ill, she also passed in that room. And um, it wasn't obvious, it was not my bedroom anymore. Um, but I remember someone saying, oh, it's interesting that, you know, that room, like, you know, that they, you know, both passed in there. And I was like, well, thanks for giving me the bedroom that was haunted, everybody. <laughs> and, um, you know, I remember, you know, seeing glimpses of my grandmother and hearing things and hearing sort of like the, like an oxygen machine when it was no longer there. And whether that is your brain, your grief brain playing tricks on you or something that is physically manifesting, I actually don't think it matters. I think that, you know, ghosts are, um, sort of shades of people that we miss, shades of experiences, energy that is left around. And, you know, I have definitely had weird, um, weird experiences walking around in the Athenaeum and sort of being on the third floor by myself at night and hearing footsteps and, you know, just sort of seeing shadows and things like that. And I, it fascinates me. I think that, you know, some part of most people wants to believe in ghosts and wants to believe that, you know, people and memories are left. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's something that I will always, always grapple with and always be interested in. Um, I think we leave our impressions when we leave a place. And um, it really, to me, kind of connects with, again, a lot of the events that happen in the world that we don't have the vocabulary for, or that we don't really have the means to um, parse. And I think for one of, for me, one of those events as a child was the um, Chernobyl explosion. It was it's one of the things that I remember. I mean, 1986 was a rough year <laughs> for me as a kid. I remember watching the Challengers um, right, blow right. in January of that year, and on TV, and then watching sort of Chernobyl happen. Um, and not really understanding what was going on. Um, so I was kind of wanted to write a, a very place-based ghost story. And I was doing some research and I realized that um, Pripyat, which was what the town or the city that was created to um, house folks from, um, from Chernobyl um, that worked at the power plant is now actually a tourist destination. And you can go with a tour group and tour through the town and go through all of the, you know, houses and apartments and amusement parks and tables are still laid out for dinner. And it's this very strange, um, it is sort of this very strange thing where you can, you know, see sort of the ghosts of these people's lives and... You know, it sort of made me think too, like what would have happened if you hadn't, what, what would have happened if you had stayed? What if you refused to leave? 
And I think that that's a question that we ask a lot when there you know, is some kind of tragedy that happens. What about the people who either chose not to leave or couldn't leave? Um, so that's something that um, I'm kind of very interested in uh, exploring as well. So I'll give a little um, a taste of that, that story about, um, about Chernobyl. It's called Pripyat, which is the name of the town um, in the Ukraine. Pripyat was a city, but now Pripyat is ghosts. Long gray snouts and round glass eyes. They stomp through the flat, the glumps of their muddy boots sticking in my ears as I hide. I am meant to be asleep, or maybe gone. The clock on the wall says three o'clock, time for Baba to begin the roast. Carrots, turnips, a butt of meat, the flesh golden, electric heat sucking pink juices from the skin. Baba once told stories, a dark-mouthed oven hungry for the fat arms of children who got too close. Nasty, half-dead geese escaping from its gre greasy blackness to pull you in. Now Baba keeps her face turned from the closed lips of the stove and does not answer when I speak to her. My ear to the outside wall, I listen closely for Pripyat and hear nothing. I slide out from behind green drapes, quiet as a cat in the forest. The gray-suited ghosts never hear me making a sound. They will not take me away. Boba lies on the couch. He was a guard at the power plant, but now he sleeps, waits. For what, I do not know. Shaving cream spotting his neck and the tongues of his collar. I remember when he used to shave my cheeks. Hold very still now, he would say, one palm thick and warm against my chin. Still as stones, Garuchka. His finger a pretend razor, ready to sweep the cream away. Boba's face is stony in his sleep, like he is holding his breath. I laugh, think of the games children make adults play. Surely soon Baba will waken and find me a groom, if the ghosts do not find me. I didn't know how to hide until the day of the explosions. The television was on and I watched other gray men tapping the tiny glass screen on every channel, saying words like evacuation, radiation, explosion, Pripyat, Pripyat, Pripyat. Boba stared hard at the ghosts, prepared himself like he was going to a wedding or a funeral, kissed my cheek, and went to sleep on the couch. Baba was already sick in the kitchen, crying and vomiting in the corner. Let no one inside, Garuchka, promise me. Her silver-spun hair looked almost yellow. If anyone comes, hide. Her eyes were gray stones. The snouted men are ghosts who take girls away, make experiments of them, feed them to monsters. Baba had been taken from here once, to Germany. She swore that leaving home was almost certain death. They came soon after, but did not find me. I hid behind the drapes, 
my face tingling and red hot. Their name was printed on the chest of their suits with the other words from the television. They do not come back as often now. Perhaps when they do, it is only a dream, a trick. The glow of the moon so like the sick yellow of their glass eyes, shining on the television that no longer turns on. So I have a couple of questions okay. about this, and it kind of loops back to uh, Pompeii as well, is that, um, well, when I read Pripyat, I'm thinking, oh, wait, whoa, they're, they don't want to leave because they're actually afraid of the people, I think, mm -hmm. and not thinking about the radiation or that the radiation is like a ghost. They, get, they can't see it, so it's not there. And... Um, which was interesting to be more afraid of people, but as we know in retrospect, right. the people who wanted to stay were often shot and killed. Right. Um, and going back to Pompeii and Pripyat as this new tourist attraction, it's like, why do you think people are compelled to visit a place like Pompeii and now Pripyat? I, that's an, a really great question. Um, I think that people are compelled, and I think, I mean, I can speak for myself too, the reason that I'm compelled is that these are all places and stories that for some time were hidden, or um, especially in the case of Pompeii, you know, we didn't know that it was there for so long, and then we've been excavating it for, you know, so many um, so many years, and when we do that, I think it's this process of trying to figure out what people were like and what their lives were like and what it was like to experience something so catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of the same with um, Pripyat. You know, we are sort of very good at being tourists at destruction. Um, and I think part of it is maybe perhaps that we you know, aren't the best at facing our own traumas and our own destruction. And I think that, you know, we do learn um, in some way, and maybe in some way it's easier to see the destruction of something else um, rather than face our own. Though I do really think that looking at these, these things, like looking at Pompeii and looking at Pripyat does, um, you know, you automatically want to know the stories of the people. You want to know what it was like. And I think that that's another way in which storytelling and searching for story is creating this empathy. Um, you know, ideally creating this empathy. Um, but I, I think, you know, you're right. We are, we are obsessed with these, um, with these stories. And um, I think it's a part of our nature to be, to, you know, to want to know um, and to locate the human, um, the humanity and the human voice and the human story kind of within um, these events. Well, maybe some folks in the audience have some, uh, have something to say about that too. But before I open up, I'd like to thank you, KL, thank for you. this conversation. And um, yes, we'll take any questions if you have any.
Awesome. Thank you, Elsa. So um, what uh, Elsa just asked was, um, uh, one of the reviews of my book uh, mentioned Angela Carter and asked me to sort of talk about that um, and um, what I appreciate about Angela Carter, maybe a favorite story. Um, so I love Angela Carter, actually, and when you know uh, she was mentioned in conjunction with my work, it sort of gave me a little mini heart attack because she's one of my favorite writers. Um, I think the thing I love about Angela Carter was that she was a writer who, was, who looked at um, gender um, and sexuality within um, fairy tales and the tropes of fairy tales and stories in a very unflinching way. Um, she wrote this beautiful, um, she, she retold and reinvented stories. She also created her own very compelling narratives in very beautiful, lush um, language. Um, and so for me, when I look into a story and I see characters that I kind of recognize but that are sort of different, I'm very compelled and I want to read those stories. Um, I want to read how they're different, um, how they might expose, um, you know, different characters and different agendas. Um, she sort of famously translated um, Charles Perrault's fairy tales and talked a lot about how gender functioned, um, for example, in the Red Riding Hood story, um, which she rewrote a few times in her, in her lifetime. Um, and I, you know, for me, um, I think that she was one of those very rare writers who could tell a story with this gorgeous, amazing, poetic language and not let the language get in the way. Um, to have it sort of be complementary to the narrative, but have the narrative still be important. Um, if you're looking for some recommendations for Angela Carter, her short story collection, The Bloody Chamber, is all retellings of very famous fairy tales. And I think that's a good point at which to enter her body of work. Um, her short stories are phenomenal. Um, Burning Your Boats is her collected short stories, so that's another great... Um, way to get into her work, and she wrote a bunch of novels as well. I think some really, really creepy novels. <laughs> My favorite, um, I would say, is The Magic Toy Shop, and about sort of marionettes, <laughs> which you might imagine <laughs> like where that would go. <laughs> Great question. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Thank you so much. That's a great question. So I do, I am in love with the second person and I write a lot of my stories in the second person. Um, and I think the reason that I am compelled to write in the second person is, um, is that it's so immediate and it, um, when you have the second person, so the second person is you, you're talking, it's sort of, you're talking directly to um, someone, that's what it feels like. And it really helps the, I think, reader very personally identify with um, what's happening. It sort of places them in that you spot. I think the first person, the I, you can, you know, if you say, I walk down the street, well, right away as a reader, you can say, well, I'm reading a book. I, I'm not walking down the street. I'm not, 
I don't have to identify with this character, but there's something about the second person, the you, that really forces you into that space. Um, so for me, I use the second person to foster a sense of immediacy. Um, I think the third person um, is another perspective that I, um, you know, I use um, a little bit more, a little bit less commonly or more rarely, I would say. Um, but that for me is all about sort of having distance and gaining distance and um, having, you know, the, the reader be a little bit more removed um, from the experience. Um, does that answer your question? Awesome. Awesome. It's a great, it's a great exercise. Thank you for that. Thank you for being here. In your story about retrieving a lost lover from the clutches of death, death is a feminine Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I the question. Um, so yes, my the question is um, in the story how to bring your dead lover back. Death is a feminine entity, um, and so I was asked, you know, to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so I'm very fascinated by the way that death is personified um, in many stories. We, you know, have been personifying death forever, um, and one of the um, ways in which we personify death, death is a lot of the time death, death is genderless, but much of the time death is also male. Um, and so as I was writing this story, I was a little bit inspired by the, another story called Brushing Death's Hair. And it's about someone who's dealing with grief and how their son has, has died and they sort of get in the closet with his clothes every day and death is in there and this um, parent is brushing death's hair. And so death takes on a body um, and for me, when I was thinking about um, where death was going to land in this story and what death would look like, um, death just kept appearing to me as this woman um, walking in the desert. Um, maybe any kind of woman um, you might see walking in the desert. And so I, I created this character for death as this, like, you know, blonde woman, um, tattooed, um, sort of dirty blonde hair, kind of very, um, you know, not, not anyone that you might really look twice at, but um, I kind of wanted to portray death again as a bodily um, entity and as an entity that could, you know, could and does kind of walk among us. Um, so that was my, I think, and someone who wouldn't maybe look out of place in a honky-tonk, because I, <laughs> I really wanted to bring the honky-tonk into the, into the story um, as a setting, because I, I was interested in exploring that. Well, and also I think it's the, the honky-tonk and, you know, the, the road, and it all seems, it's very dark and alone, and that kind of, I think that sort of character feeds into that. Any other questions? No? Okay. Yes, truth. <laughs> do you avoid contemplating life? Or do you find it inspiring So it's really interesting. I think um, I was I was doing a reading with um, Min Jin Lee, which was amazing. Um, she wrote Pachinko, 
And I was talking about my work and I said, you know, my stories I think are explore the darkness. And she disagreed with me and said, I don't usually disagree with writers when they're describing their own work, but I actually think that your stories are like lamps, like points of light within these dark spaces. And it was really an interesting experience for me because it made me see a different perspective on my work, which I find is always valuable, but it also made me think of, you know, when I'm exploring darkness and I'm exploring things that, you know, can be, you know, morbid or disturbing or dark, like, I think what I'm seeking to do is find the humanity in that and find the way to show how we are, how we grapple with that. And so it's dark, I think it's dark subject matter, but it is also, again, like illuminating something. Um, and for me, that's really what I am trying to do is illuminate an experience, illuminate a character, um, illuminate, you know, something that maybe we want to push away from and, and not look at. Um, but that's really important to look at because we can find as odd as it sounds, I think we can find, you know, some joy and some lightness in these dark spaces. Um, what I read today, the excerpts I read today were all, you know, pretty dark, but there are, you know, glimmers of hope in there. There's movement through, and I think that that is sort of one of the lamp posts that I would want people to take away, or I would hope for people to take away from my work is that there's always a lamp post through whatever it is that you're doing and whatever you're going through. Um, and it can illuminate, it, it can illuminate the dark, weird, creepy things, but you know, you're one, not alone, and two, you can see that there's always this light in front of you. So that's, that's sort of like my feeling on all of the dark, creepy weirdness. <laughs> That's in my work. Any other questions? Well, once again, let's uh, thanks KL for not only writing this book, but <laughs> being here in conversation. Thank you so much for being here as well, everybody. This is really fun.